Romans chapter 3, looking at verses 9 through 20. That's on page 940 if you have one of these Bibles that, that we provide in the back. So Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. We stand to honor God's word, and uh, as we read, I encourage you to remember that it is indeed the words of, of the Lord. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is God's word. You can be seated. Amen. Thank you, Matthew. It really is a privilege to be here. I was really honored and excited when Luke asked me to fill in, because I know you have many other capable people here, and uh, uh, just remember the first time I came with Jackie and really loved uh, being here. Uh, if you weren't in New Mexico, we would probably attend this church. Um, it's, it, it, we really did like it, but especially that Luke would ask me, yeah, yeah Luke's a lot younger than me, but um, w- one of the things that um, Matthew and I didn't talk about that we did in the first service is Uh, I have a Master of Divinity from Fuller Theological Seminary, but I also have now uh, a Master of Arts in Communication Theory from Arizona State University, and my minor when I got my bachelor's degree was in communication and uh, speech and drama and all of those things, and I I can assure you I've been around uh, really talented and gifted communicators for a long time, and Luke is one of them. He's one of the best, not just a good young communicator. He is a good communicator, so really a, a pleasure. Also, uh, and really, Luke and <clears throat> I've known Matthew maybe seven years now. I've gotten to know him a lot better since I've come to Redemption, but I, I, Jackie and I met him the first time when he was over at Gilbert leading music over there, and we'd uh, go over to their uh, Sunday night service occasionally, even though I was leading a different church. I like to go over there and, and listen to Tom teach, and the first time Matthew ever led worship, I was like, wow, that guy is really being used by God. What a wonderful uh, leader. And we talked to him and introduced ourselves. So uh, it's just, it's, it's really good. Um, it's one of the reasons that I wanted to come to Redemption because of all the great young leaders that, that uh, this church has. Uh, Luke and I actually have a lot in common. I've known him for maybe five years now. We have a lot in common, just to let you know. Um, we were both college athletes. I don't know if you know that about Luke. He was a a Division I excellent third baseman for the University of Illinois, and um, I was on the speech team at Grand Canyon University, so um, <laughs> right there we just bo- we bonded in that regard. Uh, we're both married to former college athletes, Molly Swam, Jackie played 
uh, volleyball. Um, both of us, our wives could beat us up anytime they want. We have that in common as well. Uh, and really, the biggest thing we have in common is our love for the Word of God and the privilege that we have, the honor that we have to proclaim the gospel and, and teach the Word. And we take that very seriously. We spend a lot of time together in the collectives. I'm sure Luca's talked to you a little bit about that before. So it's, it's really good. So let's get started. We have been going through the book of Romans, and uh, we're taking it just a little bit at a time. And uh, I, I remember it seems like months ago, it was, it was months ago we got to talk about how Paul opened the book of Romans by saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to anyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Gentile, for in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And, and those are great words. But then, uh, Paul goes into this first long section that we have in the letter that he writes to the church of Rome. It goes from chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. This is what we finish today. And this is our 12th week in this long section, where essentially Paul is the prosecuting attorney, and he brings his case to the people in the church at Rome. He's talking supposedly to Christians, I want you to understand. He's not talking necessarily to people who don't know who Jesus is and don't necessarily believe. He's talking to the Christian church at Rome, and he brings his case as the prosecuting attorney that apart from Jesus Christ, uh, human beings, man, our nature is corrupt. We are fallen and we are sinful. And he brings a case that is as complete and as comprehensive as you're going to find anywhere for our fallenness, for our sin, and for our depravity. And he starts off by saying, listen, it is absolutely clear to people who God is. He has revealed himself through his creation. All you have to do is look around and know that there is a God. But the problem with human beings, apart from Christ, is that we, we take that truth and we bind it. We suppress it. The word that, that's used in Scripture is we suppress the truth. Literally, that word translated means to bind it up, to tie it up. We actively do it. This is not something passive that we do in our ignorance. We actively go after the truth of God. We bind it up. We tie it up. We set it aside. And then we walk off and we say, now, with that out of the way, I can live my life the way I want to. Essentially, I can be the God of my life. And we suppress that truth and we start to lean into what we call our own truth that fits us better. And Paul says, this is a huge problem. And he says, what that leads to is, is what I call the descent into depravity, which is the rest of Romans chapter 1, where he just goes through and he says, look at, at what the rebellion against God and his truth leads us to. It leads us to all of these various sin behaviors because we are sinful. We are under the curse of sin. And then in chapter 2, he starts to talk to the people who say, well, yeah, I understand that there's good and bad and there's right and wrong. I, I have the, the moral picture figured out. In fact, I'm, I'm a pretty moral person. And he starts to talk to them and he says, you know what? Apart from Christ, your morality is not going to help you. Uh, apart from Christ, your good works, your deeds are not going to help you. Uh, apart from Christ, your religious affiliations, your ethnicity, none of that is going to help you. Apart from Christ, all of these 
erudite philosophical questions that you can bring uh, to, to the conversation, those ultimately aren't going to help you. We'll do our best to try to answer them, but ultimately you're going to get to a point where you, none of the answers are going to satisfy you apart from Christ, and now you're just answering the questions to try to distract from the real issue at hand, which is that you're suppressing the truth. So that doesn't help you. Marks and signs of having faith don't even help you if you don't have the faith in the first place. I know many people who take communion, they've been confirmed, they go to church, and they've been baptized who wouldn't know the difference between Jesus and that microphone over there. The marks of religion don't help you apart from faith in Christ. Paul says several times, we are completely without excuse he closes every last single loophole that there is for us to be able to come and question or assert that apart from Christ, we're still okay and, we, and God will find us righteous before him. Uh, one of the things that I've been able to do with my master's degree from ASU is that for the last 12 years, I've been able to teach uh, communication as an adjunct instructor at Paradise Valley Community College and for the last 13 years, I've also taught communication at Fuller Theological Seminary here in Phoenix at the, at the Extension Campus. And, and, and one of the things that that degree also afforded me was the ability to, to become a social science scientist as well as a theologian. Now, I know for some of you, you hear that term social science or social scientist, and you're just like, get that stuff out of here. Well, one of the things that I love about social science is that the research virtually always confirms what Scripture has already told us. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing to read a research project by people who have never read the Bible, and they're doing it on interpersonal conflict. That's one of the areas of specialty that I got a degree in. And, and at the end of this 40-page research uh, project, the, the, the journal article, their conclusion is that you should never try to overcome evil with more evil. You should always try to overcome evil with good. And then they pat themselves on the back for how smart they are and what they've discovered. Well, Paul wrote that in Romans chapter 12, 2,000 years ago. So I love social science. Here's one of my favorite social science discoveries. And, and this was discovered not through one research project where they interviewed 131 freshmen at U of A. This has been, this has been researched and looked at for decades now. You can find it anywhere. 90% of us, 90% of us, believe that we are the exception to virtually any rule or paradigm or axiom that's out there. 90% of us. We may know that that's true in the world and that's good for the world and that's the general teaching, but I am unique. I am different. I am special. Yeah, you're unique just like everybody else. And, and so we look at a passage like this and we say, this doesn't apply to me. Yes, it does. It applies to you. And Paul knows that. This is why Paul's writing it, so that, so that he closes every last single loophole, because he knows by the power of the Holy Spirit who inspired him to write this, and I would argue that he knows it because he's a human being interacting with other human beings and listening to people saying, but I'm in the exception, I'm an, I have an excuse, I'm unique. He listens to those people, he says, when I write this, I've got to make it so there is no exception, no loophole, there's no chance that anybody can read this and walk away from it and say, yes, but I am still the exception. 
That's just the way we live our lives. We're the exception. I'm the exception. I I know that this is the good paradigm for marriage, but I'm going to marry this guy or this gal anyway because I know that we'll work it out because we love each other so much. And then three years later, it's a mess. I'm the exception at work. I don't have to follow the rules at work. And then you end up being downsized or laid off or fired because you're not the exception, but we think we're the exception. Paul wants to close the loopholes. And so now as the prosecuting attorney, he moves into his closing argument. Verses 9 through 20 are his closing argument. Paul summarizes now everything he said. He summarizes the condition of man apart from Christ. He summarizes the condition of our fallen nature. And let me tell you something. If you listen to Matthew read this, and now we're going to go through it very slowly, this is not pretty. This will not build up your self-esteem. If you got up this morning and said, I'm going to go to church and have my self-esteem built up, that was Satan talking to you. That's not what's going to happen this morning. What Paul says here is not politically correct. What Paul says here is not going to win any pop culture awards. Nobody's going to lift it up as truth in our culture. But he's here to say, listen, you are all in the same boat apart from Christ. And that is hopeless and helpless apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a wonderful story that I read years and years ago. And many of you did too, probably. It's called The Emperor's New Clothes. You heard of that? Hans Christian Andersen, right, y'all? Okay, so the emperor, uh, these are my terms now, I'm paraphrasing. The emperor was a clothes horse, right? Loved clothes. And, and, he, and he hooked up with a couple of guys, swindlers, con artists, who said they were going to make him the most delightful, most wonderful, most uh, extravagant, most North Scottsdale kind of clothing that he has ever worn in his life. And give, me all the, give us all your money so that we can do that. So he paid them a lot of money. He was convinced. And then they set about making these clothes. And they weren't making him any clothes. They were pretending to make him clothes. And somebody would go by and check on on the manufacturing of these clothes. And they would discover that they were in there pretending to be weaving clothes and making fabric and putting stuff together. But there was nothing there. They were invisible. And what was the the thing that they attached to this this outfit of clothes? They said, look, uh, only if you are wise and competent are you going to be able to see these clothes. That's, that's the only way you're going to be able to see these clothes is if you are wise and competent. But if you're a fool, if you're not smart, if you're unintelligent, you're probably not going to see these clothes. And that was their way to make sure that they could bind up everybody's mouths about the fact that they weren't doing anything. And they were such good con artists and such good swindlers that even in the middle of the project, they went to the king and asked him for more money because they were gonna, the clothes were going to be so magnificent that they needed more money to be able to finish them off. And the king gave him more money. And so finally the king comes. And he's going to wear this new outfit of clothes in a big parade. And he comes and they dress him and they pretend to dress him and put the clothes on, but he's naked. And the king doesn't want to say anything because he's the king. He's supposed to be wise and competent. He doesn't want to admit that he's a fool, so he doesn't say anything. He just goes with it. And now he's being paraded. And he's out there stark naked. But nobody's saying anything because nobody wants to be accused of being a fool. Everybody wants to be thought of as being wise and competent. By the way, I have seen kings before. I have seen world political leaders before. This could not have been a pretty sight. This is a parade that I would not have wanted to be at. Finally, some little kid goes, hey, what? The emperor has no clothes. Leave it to a child to finally speak truth. And the emperor has no clothes is a perfect metaphor for what Paul is trying to get at here. All of us believe that somehow, some way, 
And if we don't believe it today, it's only because Christ has gotten a hold of us. But all of us at one time believed that somehow, some way, we would escape the judgment of God because somehow we are covered. We're covered by something. The Jews believed that they were uh, covered and clothed in righteousness by virtue of the law and circumcision. The Gentiles believed that they were clothed in excuse by virtue of ignorance or morality or knowledge or religious association. People today in the 21st century believe that they're clothed by those things that I've mentioned before. They're clothed by baptism or communion or confirmation or church attendance. And, and if you don't know Jesus, that doesn't clothe you. They're merely marks or signs of the inner reality that's supposed to be going on inside of your soul. And that is the thrust of Paul's closing argument here in 9 through 20. He's going to talk about our character, our conduct, and the cause of all of this. And then at the end, we're going to... We're going to deal with a question that our culture has seemingly answered, but Paul brings a different answer to this question. So, you look at verse 9. I hope your Bibles are open. You look at verse 9, and Paul says, All are under sin. And it's, the key thing to understand here is that our condemnation is not because we sin. Paul would have said sins if that were the case, Rather, he uses the singular. We are all under sin. We're under the nature of sin. We are under the curse, the Adam and Eve's curse of sin. It's not that we were born with a clean slate and eventually we messed that up. It's not that we were born with the opportunity to only do good and never do sin, but we messed that up. That's not it at all. It's in our nature, and we are under that nature. And you've heard this illustration a million times before, but I'll bring it up again. Parents, you know this is true. In your household, have you ever had to teach your child to lie or to hurt others or to blame or to hide or to cover? Have you ever had to teach them that? Yes, that's what we teach in our house because our children are different. They just never figured that out on their own, so we have taught them how to sin. You never hear that. Instead, you're talking about, well, we got to teach them this and we got to teach them that. You know that inherently they are born in sin. They are conceived in sin, as King David tells us in, in Psalm 51. It's our true identity. This is why in, in state universities everywhere, you can't escape a degree in a state university anymore without being confronted with the idea that you have to take some class or classes about how to construct your identity. Identity construction has become the big thing in our culture now today because we know something's wrong, but we've bound up the truth and we've left it over there and we don't want to listen to God's solution to this. And so now we have to go and construct our own identities. It's one of the ways that we react against our own sinfulness without actually ever talking about our sinfulness. We're told in our culture that people are inherently good. You're inherent, people are inherently good. People, people are basically good. If you go deep, 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 even Charles Manson, you get deep enough in his heart, you're going to find goodness. No, you're not. No, you're not. Deep, 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 down in every one of our unredeemed hearts, including mine, all you find is darkness and wickedness. That's what Paul is saying here. He says even our motives are corrupt. Jesus said that too in the Gospels. It's included in a book, The Hard Teachings of Jesus. Nobody ever wants to read that book for some reason. But one of the things that Jesus says is, you know, all the good works that you do apart from me, doesn't matter. Your motives are wrong. That makes you wicked. 
and, and, and we know it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to admit it. We've bound that truth up and set it aside, but we know it. Only Jesus is good. And yet, in his goodness, he seeks us. He loves us. He died for us. That should be the best news. That is the best news you and I could ever hear. Paul knows he has to present the bad news for the good news to make any sense. What good is Jesus apart from my sin? None. The only thing we bring to the table is sin. It's called universal total depravity. And I know some of you are like, well, I'm not as bad as that person. I'm not as bad as that person. Isn't this like the PGA Tour? I'm going to make the cut and get into heaven as long as I'm better than half the people? No, it's not like that. By the way, that's called the social comparison process, which we all engage in. And the reason we engage in that is because we can always find somebody worse than us in any part of life to make us feel better. It doesn't work here. It doesn't work with the gospel because we're supposed to be comparing ourselves to God. We may not be as bad as others, but we are as bad off as everyone else apart from Jesus. In our natural state, we may not be as bad as we can be, but we don't even have a chance to be good. The best we can ever say about ourselves is that we are better than someone else. That's the best. The Russian poet Ivan Turgenev says this, I don't know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I do know what the heart of a good man is like, and it is terrible. Now, I know that you have never heard this before. Luke has never said this before. It is hardly ever preached in here. But Tyler Johnson once said, if sin were blue, we'd all be Smurfs. You've never heard that before, right? Just wanted to make you feel at home. And again, the funny thing is, is that even though our depravity reaches this magnitude, God reaches deep down to us and saves us through his son, Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. So we're under sin and then Paul says, here's what it looks like in verses 10 through 18. Some of the most uh, violently challenging words in Scripture, verses 10 through 18. In, in verses 10 through 18, Paul cites six different Old Testament sources. He makes 14 statements, declarative uh, 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 statements about who we are. Uh, literarily, this is known as a karaz or a string of pearls. Now, you read through these nine verses, and you go, that's no string of pearls. That hurts. But it is, because he's telling us the truth. Another way to look at it is it's a string of wise sayings. It's a string of true sayings. And he starts with verses 10 through 12, and he absolutely outlines what our character is. Our character, apart from Christ, is that we are not righteous. He says there's none righteous. That's our moral nature. We may think we have some game, but the problem is, is that we think we have game because we're comparing ourselves to others, and we can always find somebody who's worse than we are, or, or that we perceive as worse than we are, that behaves worse than us. The problem is, as I said, we're supposed to be comparing ourselves to God. Once we do that, we know that we have no game whatsoever. We have no right standing before God because he's perfect. And then Paul says, no, not one. Why does he do that? Because he knows how we are. He says, no one is righteous. We're going to go, really? No one? That's exactly what we're going to do because we're thinking, really, even me, I'm not righteous? And he says, no, not one. He's closing every single possible avenue of escape that we think we have. And he says, no one understands. 
This, this is dealing with our sinful mind. We'll understands what? What don't we understand? We don't understand God's perspective on things. We have our perspective, and we think that's right and good and true, but it's not. We don't have God's perspective. No one sees what God sees. No one understands the world the way God understands it, and that's something that we should strive for. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes that the God of this world has blinded people so that they are unable to see the glory of the gospel and of Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says, Have the same mind as you that was in Christ Jesus. View the world the way Jesus saw it. That's what you're supposed to do. That's what I'm supposed to do. And then he says, no one seeks for God. In our natural state, we're not seeking God. We're seeking answers and we're seeking ourselves. But we never seek God. Our will is captive to our sin. And then Paul writes, All turn away. All become worthless. Worthless in what? Your purpose and your offering in life. Apart from Christ, your purpose and your offering in life are of no value. And then he says, No one does good. Even when you think you're doing good, no one does good. Not even one. That goes back to the motives. Now, here's... Here's what's tough. Few people believe any of this. In fact, I would argue that there's not a lot of people even in this room who believe all of this. You're just sure that somehow this is antiquated. Somehow we've evolved beyond this. Somehow it isn't quite right anymore. But it's the truth. It's the absolute truth. It's the truth about human nature, and it is the foundation for why we must have Jesus. I'm surprised. I've been at Redemption 17 months. One of the reasons I came here is because of our theology and our high view of the Bible. Go online and read what we say about our theology, what we say about Scripture, and, and yet I still run into people at Redemption all the time who are universalists. Believe that everybody's going to heaven. Everybody's going to, in the end, be found righteous before God. People believe that. Teaching through this section of Romans has been an eye-opener to them. And many of them have rejected it and walked away. This is tough stuff, I know. But it's the truth. It's, It's what we need to know so that we'll reach out to Jesus. If anybody could be righteous or good apart from Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, then those things have no value. His life, death, and resurrection have no value if you can make it without him. And then verses 13 through 17 talks about our conduct. So 10 through 12 is our character. Now we look at our conduct. And conduct is betrayed in our sin. Those two first verses, 13 and 14, talks about our speech. Our throats, our tongues, our mouths, and our lips spew evil. It's very interesting the emphasis that Scripture puts on uh, the sins of the mouth, yet how, much, how many of us ignore those sins. We want to talk about sexual immorality and murder and, and stealing and all of those things, but rarely do we want to talk about the sins of our mouth. And yes, those other sins are serious. I get it. Sexual immorality, murders. Put me down for a yes as those are bad sins. But read the Gospels, read Paul, read especially James, and you will see that there is a huge emphasis on sins of speech. And the reason is because they are so damaging. Let's talk about the first one. Gossip. 
a few months ago when we were in Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, we paused for two weeks, if you remember, and we talked about homosexuality. Do you, do you all remember that? Okay. And in every congregation, every redemption congregation during those two weeks, we had people get up and walk out uh, during, during the sermon. And we were talking at Arcadia a couple of weeks ago. What if we ever preached the same way about gossip that we preached about homosexuality? And anybody who was a gossiper had to get up and walk out because they were offended. We wouldn't be preaching to anybody. Everybody would get up and walk out. We are all gossips. We slander. We commit fraud. We make factions. We, we like to see people divided. We do that in our families. We do that at work. We do it at church all the time. Are you a drama queen or king or whatever name I'm supposed to use for that? Is that your thing? You love to stir people up and then walk away and watch them divide? These are all sins of the mouth. Do you lie? Do you commit fraud? Malicious, evil talk? Filthy, ruinous talk? Paul uses three categories of our speech to make his point. He says our throats are open graves. And it results in filth. And, and I know some of you are like, yeah, filthy talk. Go get them, preacher. Talk about cussing and the F-bombs and all that stuff. That's not what he's talking about here. When he talks about filthy talk, he's talking here about the way we use our mouths to mock God. And then, he, and then he says that our tongues are filled with deceit. And we deceive people mostly for our own personal gain, which means it costs other people. Have you ever been the victim of fraud? You know what that's like. And then he says, our lips contain venom, poison, and we use that to curse people. We assassinate others, not physically, but we assassinate their character and their reputation all the time. Isn't it interesting that in his closing argument, he uses our speech as one of his points? And then he moves on in verses 15 through 17 to our proclivity for violence. I don't know if you've noticed, but human beings are very violent creatures. We don't like to think of ourselves in, in those terms, but we are. Uh, scripture speaks about our feet, what we do with our feet, as a metaphor for how we live our lives. And Paul says our feet are swift, swift to shed blood, to ruin people and cause them misery, and to disrupt peace. Our feet are quick to do, do those things. People are violent. And if you don't think so... Just look at the most popular videos on YouTube. The most popular category of videos on YouTube are violent videos. Videos where you've been able to catch a bar fight or, or a high school fight, a uh, couple of kids after school. Or, or how about, I, I will tell you, I am a huge, I love hockey. I'm a big hockey fan. The most popular hockey videos on YouTube, though, are the, are the videos of the fights, not of the goals and of the great saves. We are violent people. Will Durant wrote, Lessons from history, and in that he said, in the last 3,500 years, we've only known about 200 years without war. We are violent. And if you think we can have peace apart from the gospel, you're, you're either naive or you're self-seeking. How many political leaders, apart from Christ, apart from the gospel, have said, I have a plan for peace in the Middle East? Really, after 3,000 years, you figured it out. That's, that's, that's somebody just trying to build their legacy, in my opinion. How many of you used to, you don't have to raise your hands, I know you're in church. 
Uh, there was a show called 24 that had eight seasons. Even they got this right in season eight. If you're a 24 aficionado, you know that in season eight, the president had a plan for peace in the Middle East. And it got blown up. Why? Because of the sinfulness of the people in the Middle East, the sinfulness of the people in Russia, and the sinfulness of the people in the United States of America. Even 24 got it right. They know that we can't have peace in the Middle East. They just don't know that they need the gospel. That's the only part they don't know. And then verse 18 gives us the cause of our depravity. We don't fear God. We don't accept God's perspective. We refuse to take our thoughts captive to Jesus Christ. We don't have the mind of Christ. We don't lean into that. And the Proverbs tell us there is a way that seems right to each one of us, right? There is a way that seems right to each one of us, but in the end it leads to death. It leads to destruction. The bottom line, Paul says, is that we are naked. We are uncovered. And it's time to admit that. Finally, Paul's conclusion in this first major section of the letter that he writes to the church in Rome is verses 19 and 20. Let me read them to you again. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In summary, Paul says three things. In these two verses. Number one, he says every human being is accountable to God no matter what. Uh, Number two, he says every human being is guilty of sin. And that you're not going to have some uh, 11th hour magical invisible covering that's going to cover you up when you stand before God. And number three, no human being is justified through good works. The only good work that justifies us is the finished work of Christ on the cross. And then one other thing about verse 19 that Paul says, he says, listen, every mouth will be stopped. What is that about? Here's what he's talking about. He's talking about on that day when you and I actually do stand before God, when we really do stand before God, the reality and the truth of the situation is finally going to set in for us. And we're going to be silenced. How many of us have ever said, and you've heard other people say this, how many of us have ever said, When I stand before God, I've got some questions for him. And I want him to explain this, and I want to know about that. Paul's saying, the power and the presence of God, you're going to look at him and you're going to go, I got nothing to say. You're going to be Job. You're going to be Isaiah. What did Isaiah say? Woe is me, I am undone. He says, your mouths will be stopped. And our only hope at that moment is if Jesus, our defense attorney, speaks up on our behalf. We've said this every week of this series. Do you know Jesus? If not, it's time to come. Let me put a bow on what Paul said with this question, the ultimate question that culture deals with. Are human beings spiritually well, spiritually sick, spiritually dead those are the three options we have listening to culture we would naturally assume that human beings are spiritually well that we have nothing to worry about we're basically good sure we mess up occasionally but that's okay especially since when we mess up it's usually somebody else's fault right we're basically well we're basically good we're okay that's probably the the most popular position 
The second position, that we're sick. We're somehow deficient in some way, but we're going to recover. It's recoverable, and, and we're the ones that get to work on that primarily. So we get involved in causes, and we give money, and we go on a personal moral make. How many of you have ever done that personal moral makeover thing? Maybe those aren't the words you've used, but you've decided you're really going to do a, do a better job at being a good person. And then, of course, you deem in your judgment that you've done a good enough job. It's always convenient when you're the judge of your own behavior, isn't it? Occasionally, we might need to bring in some outside help. There's a wonderful uh, clip from a, a little-known movie I want to show you. It's about two minutes long. It, it's, it's talking about physical death, but the, but the parallel to our spiritual well-being, our spiritual sickness, is, is kind of interesting. You take a look at this. Are you the Miracle Max who worked for the king all those years? The king's thinking son fired me. And thank you so much for bringing up such a painful subject. While you're at it, why don't you give me a nice paper cut and pour lemon juice on it? We're closed! Beat it or I'll call the Brute Squad. I'm on the Brute Squad. You are the Brute Squad. We need a miracle. It's very important. Look, I'm retired. Besides, why would you want someone the king's stinking son fired? I might kill whoever you wanted me to miracle. He's already dead. He is, eh? I'll take a look. Bring him in. I've seen worse. me, Sonny. You rush a miracle, man, you get rotten miracles. You got money? Sixty-five. I never worked for so little, except once, and that was a very noble cause. This is noble, sir. His wife is crippled. His children are on the brink of starvation. Now, you a rotten liar. I need him to help avenge my father. Murdered these 20 years. Your first story was better. Where's that bellows cramp? He probably owes you money, huh? Well, I'll ask him. He's dead. He can't talk. Look who knows so much, huh? Well, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Please open his mouth. Now, mostly dead is slightly alive. Now, all dead, well, with all dead, there's usually only one thing that you can do. What's that? Go through his clothes and look for loose change. That is the perfect metaphor of, of what most people in our culture, at the worst, think about humanity. That the very worst of us are mostly dead, but we're still partly alive. And we're alive enough to be able to save ourselves, or maybe if we need to just get a little bit of help, we can get some help and we can save ourselves that way. It's why self-help books are the most popular category of books in, in, in any bookstore or Amazon.com. The view is that we're okay, there's room for improvement, but it's nothing that's going to keep us from the glory of God. We are willing to say, nobody's perfect, I'm not perfect, but we'll never say, I'm not righteous before God. I may have my flaws, but I'm still good enough to get in somehow some way 
I'm basically a good person. I'll make the cut. I volunteer. I give money to worthy causes. I did confirmation classes. I didn't like it, but I finished it. I'm in. I checked a box at a prayer breakfast. I attend church fairly regularly. I love and take care of the environment. I'm a good tipper. By the way, that's the one that gets you the closest to the righteousness of Jesus, is being a, close tipper, a good tipper. But it's still not close enough. That's what we think. The last option is that we are dead. We're spiritually dead. And nothing in us or apart from us, other than the intervention of Jesus Christ in our lives, can make us alive again. That's what Paul is teaching here, and it is the truth. We don't like it because it doesn't involve us. It doesn't involve our glory. It doesn't involve our ability. It doesn't involve our righteousness, our good deeds, or our truth. But that is the absolute truth that Paul is teaching here. It's what he teaches throughout Romans 1.18 through 3.20. And he teaches this elsewhere, too. You don't have to turn there because the words will be up there, but I'm going to close with this passage from Ephesians. This is exactly what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. He writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. You were dead. He doesn't say you were mostly dead. He says you were dead, all the way dead. We were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. That doesn't play well. We are children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. Beginning of verse 4, the two best words in Scripture, but God. But God, not but you, in your brilliance and intelligence, but you, in your moral makeover class, but you, but you, no, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, his son died for us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with, with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. And that's what we move into next week. Paul starts next week, chapter 3, verse 21, by saying, But now a righteousness apart from the law has been made manifest, and it is Jesus Christ, not just Savior, but Lord. Let's pray. Matthew will come and lead us in our time of response. God, we thank you for your word and its truth. And even when that truth is unpleasant, we thank you for it because at the end of that unpleasantness is the greatest news we've ever heard, and that is your son, Jesus Christ, lived, died, and resurrected for us. God, thank you for the redemption that we have. And for those whose hearts are stirring right now, we just pray that the Holy Spirit would stir them to the point of response, that they would cross that line of faith, that this would be the day that you would come to know Jesus. It's the only answer that will ever make any difference. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.